So I saw a lot of excited school children in our community this past week. Friday evening, I looked out the window of my house and I actually saw a kid going down the street on a pogo stick. How apropos, I thought, at the end of the school year. It all sort of reminded me of one of these, which is something I created as a child to assist me in counting down the days till something special, whether that was to Christmas or my birthday or the last day of school. And I remember finding such satisfaction in tearing off one loop every day and knowing I was that much closer to whatever the occasion was that I was looking forward to. Of course, as I got older, more mature, I got rid of that childish practice. And I engaged in it a little differently. (laughs) My calendar, taking my marker each day and marking off another square, knowing again that I was that much closer to whatever it was deemed as important in my schedule. So with this being my temperament, you can imagine my utter delight a few years ago when a friend of mine introduced me to an app called Countdown Star. Do you know it? Presently, this handy app is counting down the weeks, the days, the hours, the minutes, even the seconds to my summer vacation. (laughs) For the most part, This is a healthy thing. I don't look at it very often, and when I do, it's typically when my family is discussing our upcoming plans. And so it's healthy. It's an encouraging thing. But to be honest, occasionally I find myself opening this app and staring at the seconds ticking away when I'm tired or when I find myself wanting to escape the reality of here and now, just for a second or two, looking ahead to some time and place that I'm sure will be so much better than this one. Now I have a hunch that I'm not alone in looking for something bigger or better than the here and now. In fact, as Westerners, I think we are addicted to special occasions. Case in point, last week I was shopping in one of these big box general merchandise stores that we have around here and I turned the corner into an aisle that was filled with Halloween paraphernalia. I'm not kidding, costumes and candy and pumpkin-y stuff all over the place. And I stopped for a minute, a little discombobulating, thinking, what month are we in? It was May, folks. It was the middle of May at that point, to be precise. So we're five and a half, almost six months, a half a year away from Halloween. And yet here is an aisle completely devoted to the occasion already. And what's more, there was this lady standing there really sort of in turmoil, trying to decide between two pumpkins that she had in her hand. One had a jack-o'-lantern face etched in it, and the other one was plain. And she seemed genuinely distraught, trying to figure out which one of these was going to complete her collection. Almost frantic, I assume, thinking that time was of the essence, or that someone was going to swoop in and take out her treasure from underneath her. But isn't it true that we so often live our lives postured for the next big thing, the next big event or occasion. And when we can't identify such an event within near enough proximity to us, what do we do then? We create one. If you doubt this, let me tell you about some legitimately declared holidays that are coming up in the month of June. There's June 4th, which has been deemed as National Applesauce Cake Day. (laughs) That's something to celebrate. And if you're not into celebrating things of the culinary nature, fear not, because this exact same day is National Hug Your Cat Day. (laughs) Just two days later, we will celebrate National Gardening Exercise Day. 
I didn't know what this was, but I like both of these things, so I investigated and found that the slogan for this day is, get out and exercise with your plants. (laughs) But I've been trying to imagine what that might look like. And good news for all you world citizens out there, this isn't confined to North America alone, because later in the month, you can look forward to celebrating Global Wind Day or International Mud Day. I don't know who the powers that be are who get to dictate these holidays, but they're real things. People put these things on their calendars and plan celebrations around them. We didn't create these graphics. They were out there for the grabbing. So somebody takes these things very seriously. Now, of course, there is nothing wrong with celebrating special events or even appreciating things like wind and cake and cats, though I might draw the line at cats. But for some of you, okay. But it seems to me that we have developed an insatiable appetite for the special occasion, doesn't it? We live from one big event to the next. It's as if we're wired to wake up in the morning and forget about the day that's ahead of us. We're already thinking about some occasion in the future that promises us something different and better than we have here and now. And it has occurred to me recently that this is a real problem This is my problem. It has been for a very, very long time. Ask me on any day how I'm doing, and more often than I'd like to admit, I am prone to answer you by telling you that I can't wait till the next holiday or special occasion or until I'm done with whatever is keeping me really busy right now or something that's stressing me out. And somehow I'm just sure that as soon as I get past this, things will be better. So I've learned that this tendency has been called living for the weekend syndrome. Maybe you're familiar with that, but it's the idea of your friends or family gathered around the water cooler at work on Monday morning, and you're already pining away for what's going to happen five days from now if you can just push through work or school and get to where life's really good. But if you think about that for just a minute, to live for the weekend is to miss five-sevenths of the week. That's 70% of a lifetime. And so if this is our posture and our general disposition, and if we're always looking ahead for something that is yet to come, then I have to wonder, are we missing something right now? And that's what struck me as I read this passage we just heard from Acts chapter 2. Now I will admit The book of Acts seems to be a far more beloved book of the Bible for those of us who are in love with the special event or the big occasion than many others. I mean, why on earth would we read Leviticus or Numbers when we can read Acts with all of its special events and marked occasions? In the first 10 chapters alone, you have a previously dead, now resurrected man who is ascending in bodily form to the heavens. The spirit of Pentecost, which comes across upon a group of normal people, and suddenly and miraculously, they can speak in various languages. There are mass conversions, physical healings, courtroom drama, sudden death, controversial arrest, martyrdom, persecution, raising of the dead, and prophetic visions. And that's just in the first third of the book. So I think it's easy for us to read Luke's account of these early days of the church and to romanticize this period of history, wondering why we don't experience the ways of God in the stated manner here in the 21st century. 
Because if you just open and start reading at page one, it sure seems like this is one big thing after the next. And yet here, at the end of chapter two, following Christ's ascension, the day of Pentecost, and that wonderful story about Peter who goes out into the crowd and he preaches, and 3,000 people are converted and baptized in one day. After all that, we find a reprieve from the heart-pumping action and the holiday-like frenzy of the timeline. And we're given an important piece of the puzzle for understanding what God has been speaking to me about the significance of the ordinary. Now, scholars will tell us that Luke was strategic in the way he penned his books of the New Testament. You might recall that Acts is chronicling somewhere between 30 and 40 years of history. And so while he provides for us the important accounts of these miraculous, spectacular, significant events that transpired following Jesus' resurrection, Luke seems to be aware that what he's recording here is a highlight reel. And so wanting to be conscientious in communicating the whole story, he gives us glimpses throughout the book of what normal looked like in the first century church as well. This kind of reminds me of going to the movies today. I drive my family nuts at the conclusion of any film we see together because while they're completely caught up in marveling at the moments of drama and action and suspense that have just filled the past two hours of our time, the realist in me likes to come out as we're walking out of the theater and I start asking questions like, so when did these people file taxes or pay bills? And did you see anyone eat anything during that last week-long account? Do none of these people have children that get the stomach flu or the chicken pox or who have to be at three Little League games at the same time and have a spelling test tomorrow? I mean, if we're portraying these people on the big screen as normal and ordinary, then why on earth aren't they doing ordinary things? And yet seamlessly here in the final statements of Acts chapter 2, Luke gives us this kind of a glimpse. Hidden between the recalling of the evangelistic efforts of Peter and then him healing the crippled beggar, we find these six seemingly unremarkable statements that outline some things that are important for us to understand about the everyday ordinary practices of the early church. For starters, Luke tells us that these early believers were students of the apostles' teaching. They were intentional in learning and growing in the ways of Christ. They were hungry for it, not just content with being saved, but continually seeking to know Jesus and to take on more of his person and his nature. And so they dedicated regular time, not just special occasions or holidays, but regular time to being better disciples and students in the ways of Christ. And I stop there and I ask myself, how intentional am I in leaning into the opportunities that I've been given to submit myself to the teaching of those God has placed in front of me? Do I come into this body every week expecting to comprehend and understand something new about God? Do I anticipate and look forward to how I might walk out of corporate worship or my small group or a service opportunity changed and more like Jesus because I have wholeheartedly submitted myself to the opportunity that I've been given here and now? Or am I preoccupied looking ahead to the next special event to where um, my spiritual life might be catapulted or where we might celebrate my growth in Christ? 
That might sound a little bit extreme to you, but I actually think we do this all the time. We say things like, well, maybe during Lent, I'll start engaging that spiritual discipline that pastor suggested. Or perhaps after the holidays in January, then I'll return to my discipleship group. But these early Christians, we read, were devoted to learning about Jesus, to making the most of every opportunity presented to them to learn and to grow, not just on Sundays or on holidays, but in their regular, everyday pathways and practices. We go on to read that these first believers didn't just gather once a week for study and then part ways until the next gathering. No, they lived in community with one another. So they did the daily stuff of meals and conversation and child rearing and yard work together. They were vulnerable with one another and when someone from within their community had a need, they worked together to meet that need. Whether that was paying debt or sharing food or dealing with any number of life's challenges that came about. The Greek word here for fellowship is koinonia, and it refers to a very special type of community that is founded upon reciprocity, a back and forth relationship. Like Rachel described earlier with the Trinity, with Father, Son, and Spirit, each giving and each receiving. And we read here that this kind of community was demonstrated not only at certain times or in special occasions, but in the everyday, ordinary moments and experiences of life. Now, I love to host a good get-together. I will plan for weeks when such an event is on the schedule, preparing the right menu, cleaning my house in order to honor my guests, even thinking ahead about what we might talk about around the table or what game we might play. And that's good, right? These are good things to do. But in reading this, I was convicted by asking, how often do people feel like they can just show up at my doorstep at the end of a normal, everyday, maybe even rotten day when all I can offer them is the leftover cold coffee from the morning or water from the tap, when it looks like the laundry room has blown up across my house, and I just sit and listen to them? How often do I feel that I can show up on someone else's doorstep when I need to process a hard day or when I simply need to stop by and be reminded that I have a friend? The kind of fellowship that Luke is describing here isn't just the stuff of scheduled parties and celebrations. It's you pulling up a second chair to your table at the coffee shop when you see somebody come in who looks like they need you to ask how it's going. It's you taking the neighbor's kids for a few hours one night so they can get away and work on their marriage child-free. It's you being willing to receive the offer from a brother and sister in Christ to do your shift at the carpool or to rake your yard or to help paint your house when you feel a little nervous to do so, that you might be inconveniencing them or that requires you to be vulnerable in admitting you don't really have it all together yourself. Sidebar here, but I'll tell you something I'm trying to get through my own hard skull recently. If someone's offering to do these things, you're not a burden. This is the kind of fellowship, this koinonia that Luke is talking about. It works in two ways, giving and receiving. And that's not just on a holiday or on a special occasion or when there's remuneration involved 
or because it's your field, but it's in the everyday, ordinary moments of your life. Luke goes on to say that these first century believers also worshiped together, both in their homes and in the temple. That through prayer and praise and sharing the Eucharist, worship wasn't just something done on special occasions. It was their regular, ordinary, everyday practices as followers of Christ. And it was prioritized as central to their rhythm and routine. Now, we're all here this morning, so I take that as a good sign. But again, I think it's so easy for us to get into the routine of coming to Sunday morning worship while never truly engaging a spirit of worship. There is no doubt a discipline and an obedience that we are called to in corporate worship. I believe that with all of my being. And I know that there are other things you could likely be doing with your Sunday morning, but you're here and you're practicing this ordinary routine of attending church, and I think that this is part of the equation. And yet what strikes me as significant about this part of Luke's description of the early church is that the ordinary acts of worship permeated not only the temple or the corporate worship space, but also these people's homes, where they were each and every day. There was this relishing of the opportunity to regularly and routinely acknowledge and celebrate God in this community, whether that happened at the designated time of worship or on Tuesday. And I wonder if the question for us here is, what activities of worship, prayer, praise, lament, confession, even sacrament, do we limit to this room and this space and time? What practices or postures, what attitudes or actions of worship do we need to be more intentional about employing in our homes and in our workspaces and at the gas station or the park so that we are not limiting our worship of God to any particular space or time each week, but rather are simply making a part of our ordinary This community of believers were learning and sharing and worshiping all parts of their everyday routines and normal practices. And yet in the midst of these things that would grow and build their spiritual lives and their community of faith and their relationships with God, I'm amazed when Luke tells us that they did not lose sight of Christ's charge to share the good news of the gospel with those who didn't yet know it or understand it. They weren't waiting around for God to do one more big thing so other people would know or just sending Peter back out saying, there you go, go bring in some new members to our community. No, they lived and operated in the knowledge of the spirit of Pentecost. It was actively upon them. It didn't come and then leave. No, they believed that this spirit was present and dwelling amongst them this ordinary, everyday community of believers, and that it was empowering them to witness to the salvation and lordship of Jesus Christ. I don't see here that Luke is telling us that this community organized a big event geared towards bringing people to Jesus, though they might have done that as well. But what he says is that as these believers were doing the ordinary stuff of their lives, as they were faithful to what they were called to do in Jesus, the Lord added to their fellowship. Multiplication happened, and there was fruit in the ordinary. 
So it was a couple of months ago that I was uh, with a group of believers from Grant County, and we were at an event uh, in another state. This event, for all intents and purposes, would probably have been considered secular in nature. And I listened to the people who we interacted with every day, and I got reminded, which is probably good to get reminded about all the time, but I got reminded that not everyone in this world operates in the ways of Jesus. (laughs) During this week-long event, um, our group never organized a worship service. Some of us prayed together a few times, but it was never in a public space. We just kind of went about our business like anyone else did during the course of the week. And it was towards the end of the event that a gentleman who had been working behind the scenes stopped some of our crew and asked if we were part of the group from Marion, Indiana. He was familiar with our community somehow. And when we affirmed his suspicion, he caught us off guard a little bit when he said in a deep southern drawl, I don't know what it is about y'all, but you're different from the other people here. You're kind to one another and to the other people you interact with. And when you speak, it is positive and polite, not rude or crass. And so I don't know what it is about y'all, but it's a breath of fresh air. And after working through our initial surprise at this unexpected interaction, there were a couple from our group who stayed back and took some time to get to know this guy a little better. And no, this isn't a story where he stopped in that moment and took a knee and prayed to receive Christ. I I mean, I hope that happened later on, but I don't really know. But what I saw happen in that moment were the seeds of a witness planted. It wasn't so much in anything that we had said or purposefully done in terms of an event or an occasion, but it was simply in the walking out of this everyday, ordinary life together. And I got back to my hotel room that night and I wrote down a question that has stayed with me ever since. How are the daily, ordinary routines of my life empowering the spirit to witness to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Because you see, it occurred to me right there that in my big event, special occasion mindset, Seemingly insignificant passages of scripture like these that Luke so carefully weaves into the narrative of Acts are ones that I so easily skim over because I want to get to the next big thing God has to say to me. And this was an important wake-up call. These verses are a reminder that I am so often prone to miss what God is doing here and now Today, amidst the ordinary, mundane moments of my life, because I'm so busy planning for and looking ahead to what's next and attempting to schedule or even fabricate a big event where I believe God should show up and work in big ways. And it seems that what Luke understood and was pointing out here about these early disciples is that they were not sustained in their faith by the extraordinary. Instead, they were nourished in the everyday faithful pursuit of knowing God and by interacting with his word and his church. Now, if you're reading along with me, you're going to say, hey, Emily, you missed a part in there, and I know I'm getting to it. It does. Luke does say in this description that God continued to do great and mighty things, miraculous signs and wonders in the midst of this community of believers. And if you're like me, that's the part you want to latch on to. But take a look at the order of how those words are penned. He says that this group of believers were filled with awe. 
word study for just a moment. That's a word that kind of mushes together the concepts of enthusiasm and reverence or excitement and holy fear all into one. He tells us that this was the posture of these believers' hearts already. Probably already established and in place based on what they had previously experienced and were actively now experiencing of God. And then he did more miraculous signs and wonders And I think so often our tendency to look ahead to the next big thing causes us to think, well, when God does this or that, then my faith will increase. Then my life will be right and I will be spirit-filled. And there is, of course, nothing wrong with asking God to do big things or expecting him to accomplish the impossible even. We're told that's what faith is, right? The evidence of things hoped for but not yet seen But we get into trouble when in our unquenchable thirst for the extraordinary acts of God or even for this special occasion that reminds us to commemorate those acts causes us to miss the sacred and the divine of the here and now. The opportunities that are holy in these ordinary, commonplace, familiar moments of today. The problem with a faith that is based upon miracles, writes Anthony Robinson, is that it always requires one more miracle. And sometimes I wonder if we miss the impressive yet subtle signs and wonders of God because we are searching for a spectacle or waiting for a declared day upon which we expect God to act, to show up in a particular manner. If in our pining away for the burning bush or the pool of Bethesda, or the Damascus Road, we are oblivious to the miraculous potential of this breath or this conversation, the simple holy moments that we have been given. So there's a pastor and scholar by the name of Lawrence Stuckey, and he argues that in far more of the world's history than not, God has chosen to work behind the scenes, incognito, away from public acclaim or recognition. And he goes on to ask a poignant question that has stopped me in my tracks. He asked, was God any less active in the world during Christ's first three decades here than he was during the last few years when we know details about his earthly ministry? I'm guessing that Luke could have put this account of the everyday life of the first century church really anywhere in these opening chapters of Acts. But I'm thankful that he placed it here, immediately following his description of the events at Pentecost. Because last week was an important point of transition for the church worldwide as we concluded the season of Easter by celebrating the gift of the Holy Spirit. And today we transition into a new season of the church year known as ordinary time. And I'm not going to stand up here and bore you with how that title, ordinary time, in the English language is really insufficient. It doesn't appropriately reflect how we should understand this season. But essentially, it's the title we have for the longest season of the church year, over six months. And it's a season when we are called to remember the ongoing work of the church in the world and how God continues to strive to redeem all of his creation. I ask myself, what is ordinary about that? And yet at the same time, 
How wonderfully ordinary of God is that? And so as we transition out of these last six months where we have remembered and celebrated Christ, anticipating his birth and his return in Advent, his coming to be near us in Christmas, the manifestation of his deity in Epiphany, the journey to the cross and his sacrificial death in Lent, and his resurrection, ascension, and the gifting of the Spirit in Easter. I wonder if this morning, in response to his word, it wouldn't be appropriate for us to pause here at the beginning of this new season, ordinary time, and to consecrate ourselves to the holy opportunities of this day and each day that we are granted. And so with that in mind, I want to invite you to stand. The church has historically encouraged lavish means of preparing something or someone for consecration, but I think in the spirit of celebrating the ordinary today, we might simply entertain a season of silence and being quiet before God to engage in confession and consecration. So will you bow your heads and in silence ask God to mark these moments as sacred. Ask yourself, what would it look like for you to acknowledge the presence and the power and the work of God in the ordinary? What would you think about first when you woke up in the morning? And who would you interact with differently? How would you interact with them differently if you had to the understanding that God had ordained your encounter with them for divine purposes? And where might you see God at work if you disciplined yourself to seek him in just the ordinary stuff of your daily life? God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. Today we recognize that while you are a God of unrivaled and unrestrainable resources and capabilities, you so often demonstrate your glory and power to us in quiet and subtle and humble ways. And so some of us need to confess to you today, God, that we've been far too focused on what's ahead that we have been, in a sense, unaware and ungrateful of what you're doing here and now, and we are heartily sorry for this ingratitude. Others of us need to admit that we have unknowingly put expectations upon you, God, to show up or to perform in particular ways or at particular times in order for us to believe that you're at work in our midst. So we ask that you would help us to let go of our preconceived expectations of you, that you would remove these hindrances to our ability to see all that you are truly doing in our midst and that you would allow us to celebrate here and now and even the simplest ways that we see you at work around us. Help us to demonstrate to those near us your love and your activity because we see it first and point them to you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Savior.